0: Catherine Calderwood has been the Chief Medical Officer in Scotland since March 2015. Her first CMO report, which she titled Realistic Medicine, has created quite a stir, even beyond the borders of Scotland. Helen MacDonald, Clinical Editor for the BMJ, and myself Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor, sat down with Catherine at the Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference to find out what she intended with that report. Yeah, so if you could just sort of start by telling us a little bit about your background and how you came to become um, CMO in Scotland.
1: So I'm an obstetrician and still have an antenatal clinic when I can get there. I started working for Scottish Government six years ago as a medical advisor for women and children's health and I really enjoyed it but I had a lot more obstetric practice then because I was very reluctant to to give up the, the women and the babies because that's really what I loved and I I then realised that I could really make a difference because actually the the jobbing clinician in the policy environment has such a wealth of knowledge and it became clear that I could advise on other areas that I wasn't the expert in just Mm -hmm. because I was a a medic in the NHS in Scotland and so uh, jobs changed a bit and I then ended up being somebody that advised on acute specialties and surgical specialties and I also then um, was, uh, I suppose, approached by the NHS in England and became the National Clinical Director for Women's Health and Maternity Services, advising Bruce Keogh and uh, colleagues in NHS England. So I was doing a job where I was in Scotland advising Scottish Government and in NHS England two days a week advising NHS England. But as I always said, that women and the babies weren't any different just because (laughs) the two countries had a border between them. And so, so I think that allowed me to see a healthcare system that was very different and I was right at the beginning of NHS England and the start of all of the CCGs and the commissioning and that that to work in two systems is very enlightening to um, to see then what I could see that was good about that and bring back to Scotland when I then got the CMO job. And I'm sure that that expanded knowledge enabled me then to be a a good competitor when I was interviewed to be chief medical officer. You wanted to pick or steal? So I think some of this driver, the trying to drive quality, what happens in England with some of the payment by results and some of the um, sequins where you're rewarded for uh, Mm. additional value, if you like, and also where the, the payment won't occur if you don't meet certain standards. I know that none of this is perfect, but I could see that there that it, it, seemed to be an ability to drive quality. We don't mm-hmm. have those levers of finance in Scotland, but mm-hmm. I think that, that actually what became clear to me was that you could actually people would be driven by looking at the data and wanting to make it better. So Mm. looking at their own data and realising that it varied from other places. Why does that unit manage something in a different way? It's either... Uh, more efficient or it, it, it was it offering something better for, I suppose in, in antenatal services there were places where we able to offer much wider choice for women, much more pleasant environment and yet the, the, the money for that was the same so mm. I realised that actually y- you can in fact incentivise people not just by the finances and actually probably the clinical staff are not incentivized in our system by finances because it's not an as an individual but they can be incentivized by actually wanting to improve quality of care Mm. and tell us a bit about your policy document your realistic medicine how what was the kind of brief of that what did you Set out to do so. It, it it's the chief medical officer's annual report. Yep. All four of us chief medical officers produce one, and it's yep. a it's a health yep. of the nation. It's a snapshot and it, 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 at, at a time, but it's it's a trend over time. And in in theory, one would hope we're looking at our. Uh, health are generally and it's improving and if it's not improving we ask questions why so it's a very useful document very Mm. um full of really really good data and often I think poured over very much by by public health doctors Mm. but I'm I'm not a public health doctor and so I suppose I I knew that it was valuable but I wanted to do something that would perhaps appeal to to a wider group of the medical profession. And I think that a, a lot of, of reading that I'd done and experience, perhaps as an obstetrician where you have a very family-centred approach. So mm. we, we, we our, our patients aren't ill for a start, most of them. It's uh, they, they have other children to consider. The, the, the woman and the partner are very much part of who we talk to all the time. And we also, I think, we offer women a, a choice which is very unusual and involvement in their care. Mm. And they also are, are very often very, very well informed because it's such an exciting and important part of people's lives. So I, I realised that some of all of that thinking made me want to spread that into other aspects of the medical profession. Mm. And I was reading a lot of literature about how um, doctors make decisions for themselves and their own family that are different from what they would do for their patients. So end of life, very clear research on uh, doctors, 88% of doctors wouldn't have hemodialysis, 67% of doctors wouldn't agree to be admitted to ICU, and 95% of doctors wouldn't have CPR. And yet, that isn't what we say or do to our patients. patients we we offer them all sorts of things and and maybe again back to the obstetrics i i was somebody who was pregnant with my own children at a time that i was experiencing looking after people Mm. in the same situation as me so i i I would always think what would they what am i doing at 34 weeks well why would this lady Mm. why would it be different the advice i would give her than me so Mm. actually to read in the in in very good uh, robust literature that doctors do s- act differently for their patients isn't logical why is that so that I think that's where this realistic medicine mm. concept came from I wanted to explore whether other other people could resonate that we were doing something um, that with all of our knowledge we didn't seem to be translating that into what we talked to patients about and perhaps what we were doing was, unrealistic because Mm. we doctors are fixers doctors you've gone into to what you do to to not to say i can't do anything and so were we were we being dragged into Mm. over investigating over managing over treating Uh, and in fact when we when the literature i've looked at talks to the patients they actually are on the same wavelength they they, uh, one end of life study talked to patients about um They talked to the physicians first. What did they think their patients wanted? And they all said, oh, they want to live longer. That's what they'll prioritise. And when they spoke to those physicians' patients, no no patient said their first priority was to live longer. They all said two things. One, they wanted to be symptom-free, and two, they wanted to spend time with their families. Mm -hmm. So there was a total disconnect from the the beliefs of the doctor. And I think that... um, has obviously resonated, the the report went out and it was an open letter, the the foreword of it is me writing to the doctors to say, can we practise medicine differently? And I asked the the six questions about that. And then that was, I was waiting to hear from people. Mm. I I didn't know that they wouldn't write back and say, well, that's nonsense. Tell us what the big, um, there were five or six key areas that you mentioned, talk us through what those are. So the the, uh, having a shared decision-making process with people, having a personalized approach to care so what is that person's aspiration from this interaction or this treatment I talk about reducing harm and waste but I talk about waste as in not just throwing things away but that that in fact if the uh, intervention or the interaction doesn't add value for that person then that is also wasteful and I talk about having uh, unwarranted variation in practice and how that leads to variation in our outcomes and often to poorer outcomes for patients and I think that has really resonated with people when I show them their own data the the usual reaction is they, they don't believe it because you're able to show really marked variation in practice and in outcomes across well so far all the specialties I've looked at either in length of stay or in, in readmission rate or in outcomes, and it's the same procedure being done in, in the same healthcare system on roughly the same type of patients. So, so the variation is often created by the clinicians. Mm. And I think showing clinicians very data-savvy people, their own data, that, that really shows up for them. And then I also talk about managing risk and how, how managing risk is really very important and is one of the key decision-making uh, that, that, that makes doctors stand out from other parts of the system, that actually they take the, the critical decisions, the difficult decisions and the risky decisions and, and that perhaps the, that doctors need to recognize that, that that's one of their USPs and they, uh, they, they understand that they're leaders in that. And, and I talk a lot about caring for staff, And the fact that when you're stressed and overworked, that key decision-making, that risk management is one of the first parts of decision-making that that disappears. When people are stressed, they become much more conservative and much more risk-averse. And then at the end, I talk about innovating. I talk about translational research, about um, really using our research, developing research that's relevant to the health service. Why would we be researching something that would never end up in clinical practice or never be a a and yes absolutely pushing the boundaries and developing new treatments but actually in fact looking back on what we've already developed are we actually implementing the, the treatments that we know that work the, the, they're cheaper they're not as shiny and sexy but actually for example uh, only 57% of people who are who've had a cardiovascular event and would be eligible for aspirin only 57% of people who are eligible for aspirin actually get it. But what we do is all sorts of other fancy things and give them other drugs, and we don't give them the cheap one that we know that works. So why have we not got systems to make sure 100% of, of that? That's one simple example, and there are there are many others. So I talk about that, but I also talk then about people being improvers and innovators. So each individual will have their own part of the system. They understand it, absolutely, because they're the cog in that that wheel and that everybody has the chance to change their own bit of the system to improve it and to to say well if i look at this why why is it like this why don't i examine my own bit of the system critically and that we should enable people they're the right people to do it it wouldn't be for government to do it or hospital Mm -hmm. management to do it it's actually the clinicians who say well we're not empowered to do it and i say back to them but you're the ones people will listen to particularly the you know the the lead people in leadership positions are 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 going to be um, often the doctors, and then the rest of the team will often follow that lead. But if if you don't stand back and look at your own system and ask the questions, why accept it? it? It's just the way it is. And so I think some of that is is very easy to do. It's very it's often not costly, but but people need to feel
0: empowered to do it. I'm talking about permission there. I mean, I think a thing that we've heard uh, at this conference is the perverse incentives that are in systems that are pushing people away from that kind of holistic person-centered care. Um, You know, whether that's that's some sort of conflict of interest, financial thing, um, or even kind of like guidelines and and stuff like that. So, to go along with this sort of social movement, um, are you thinking about uh, anything to 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 shake up the system and and to try and take out some of those those levers that are pushing things in the wrong way.
1: So with with your reference to guidelines, I think, and NICE has acknowledged this, I think this looking at the person in front of you not as a series of guidelines because they've got multiple conditions you need to throw at them, the the diabetes guideline, the hypertension guideline, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that whole person approach is is really going to shake up the system. And we're we're very siloed in that you'll see the cardiologist, then the rheumatologist, then our system... Doesn't allow a, a whole person approach, and and I think this social movement of thinking of that person in front of them, of you as their only interaction w- with you is not the most important interaction mm-hmm. in their day or their life. Their <laughs> whole life is spent, and then they come into an outpatient clinic for wait for two hours to see you for 15 minutes, and the rest of their day, week, month, year is is living their lives. And I don't think we think of people like that at all. Not everybody, of course, but. Th- And I suppose the other system part is to start to talk this language to the public. And so we're planning some um, engagement events on realistic medicine in Scotland. So we've got um, an oversight group in Scotland of all the patient organizations. It's called the Alliance. And so they represent big and small charities that are patient support groups. So they're going to talk to their um, members about how can we have input from people who are patients but the Scottish Health Council is, is planning a series of workshops on um, realistic medicine for the general public so in other words people who are or patients or people who are not and I think that's going to be a very important discussion because one of the other concerns I've heard from um, doctors particularly is that we if we are practicing medicine realistically here uh, and the patient in sitting opposite me is talking a different language then we can't work in a a parallel universe. My experience of stories I've been told is though that in fact the public are much more on this wavelength already than we realise. Mm. They're more realistic. They will absolutely acknowledge that they know that coming to the doctor there isn't a magic wand. So you talked um, about how policy documents can be very interesting and filled full of a lot of data Um, but this document is quite different um, and essentially you've boiled it down to some very very simple messages and you've sort of gone viral what were you what were you expecting when when the policy document went out because it's it's reached far beyond scotland and it really seems to be resonating with other people around the world so uh, if I'm honest, I didn't expect it at all. I, I decided to do something different because I wanted to produce something that was readable, that wasn't a, a a typical government document, because I wanted to reach out to my own colleagues initially, the medics, but but also I suppose the medic is part of us a, a much wider healthcare system, and um, I. I know myself what I would read and find interesting, There's something that challenges me, and something that that perhaps asks me for my input into it, but also that's in a very readable, real language, and the the, the data is all there, and statistics are there if you want them. But what, what this is doing, I suppose, is trying is trying to write an appealing document to ask questions and perhaps that's why it's been so successful i think the questions it's asked have ended up resonating with so many people as you say around the world doctors nurses pharmacists allied health professionals who who say how can we help this we want some realistic medicine for our ourselves we want to help you uh, practice medicine like this and maybe also because it has a personal resonance with people about how they would like to be treated, or how they would want their family to be treated and, and perhaps that 's where it really all started is the that that person centered focus that I think I as an obstetrician and we in maternity services probably do quite well or perhaps differently than um, other specialties simply because our clients are not often um, they 're not unwell they 're not seeking our help because they 're ill so we we don't want to have all of this harm and waste and all of these things happen to somebody that isn't on well in the Mm. first place i think the um, comments have been about permission is really interesting that actually i haven't invented something i have merely put a voice to what lots and lots of practitioners of all sorts were already feeling already doing and actually they're practicing realistic medicine. They just didn't know it was called realistic medicine. They were doing Mm. what they thought was the right thing. Mm. And maybe that's why it's resonated because I I think people say you've articulated the right thing to do for people.
0: This year, Scotland's integrated health and social care funding, uh, which seems very serendipitous for your uh, report. Are you talking to colleagues on that sort of social care side to to try and pull this all together and, and and make it work you know across people's whole lives not just their interactions.
1: So I think that will be very important I, uh, time-wise uh, we haven't got to that sector yet I, f- I have um, intended to get there because I think it needs to spread I think what I'm hearing is that particularly for those who are already at that interface this is exactly what's needed that the, the realistic approach to the whole of life it is going to be something that needs to, it needs to extend and if one part of the system is working in one way and another is different we, we can't do that so we will engage with social care colleagues again i think the social movement aspect means that some of them are already on board it, it's getting the message out there that uh, i haven't had any buddy say that it's not Going to be if you
0: want to find out more, Brian Christie has written a feature on Catherine Coldwood, now available on thebmj.com. And if you want to hear more podcasts like this, you can find our back catalogue on SoundCloud or subscribe to us through iTunes. Just search for The BMJ. Thanks for listening.